Psalm 22 tonight. Let's go over there. Psalm 22. We started this this morning. The anguish and joys of a soul. The words expressed by David and many of these uh, expressions are seen at the cross. So, it's fascinating to me how the Lord does this, and He does it often in Scripture. He has somebody going through an event in life that, uh, like David here, would be recording his own words, and yet there's so much more to it than that. That He intends for that to be used uh, in reference to Christ. The entire psalm is not about Christ. But there are, as you can see, all of a sudden there's a flash of a verse and you say, oh, yeah. And many times we find in the New Testament, the writer would say, and this is to fulfill. And there are quote from Old Testament passages. And uh, Psalm 22 is quoted often in reference to the crucifixion of Christ. And it is a, it is a challenging chapter. It is a good, good chapter. But it, it really strips down all the you know, all that we pile around the soul to to let people think that we're doing okay, right? We we put up our, our facade, we we uh, parade around, and we might be hurting severely on the inside, but on the outside we set up this image that we were in, in control of these things. And this psalm just strips it all away. And uh, as we read through it, we see anguish over and over, the expressions of anguish, and yet... There is joy woven throughout it, and we're we're especially focused on something I find very encouraging in this psalm. Tonight, we're going into the second part of it, verse 3 through 5. The first section, 1 and 2, we were speaking of the groaning, and really a groaning too deep for words is the phrase we find in the New Testament, but I think it applies very nicely here of David calling out, Why, God, why have you forsaken me? And tonight we're going to look at God's track record in verse 3 through 5, his character and actions on behalf of his people. Um, Yet, he says in verse 3, You are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. This is a great section. So let's ask the Lord's help as we get started here. Heavenly Father, help us. As we review this section of uh, this wonderful chapter, it's about you. And it will teach us much if we listen. So help us, Lord, to not only... uh, Use our head to understand, but our hearts as well. For you're the only one who can truly teach us your word. Uh, These are spiritual things. And they're disclosed by the Holy Spirit. So we come before you and just simply say, Lord, we, we want to understand. Help us to understand you, we pray. So thank you for this section and, and use it in our lives here tonight as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, our focus on God's character and His action. It's a great thing that uh, we touched on this passage earlier this morning, verse 1 and 2. 
When David said, my God, my God, he was acknowledging he had an understanding and even a relationship with God. Just that phrase, my God. And I guess if we were in his shoes, we would have been just as surprised to think that he has abandoned us, knowing who he is. And especially if he abandoned us at our very lowest point. Most of the time we assume that's when he'd be the strongest, right? When we're at our lowest point. And, and so I could almost sense a surprise in David's first couple of words. Why has thou forsaken me? Sometimes we get into things that seem so low, so deep, so difficult. We, we assume we just can't get out of it. We just can't get out. The picture I had yesterday simply was, I had driven off my son's driveway. And I wasn't expecting the, the pickup to sink. And it did. Just right down, almost to the axles. Sitting there in the side of her yard. So, what do you do? You gun it, right? And I'm flinging mud this way and flinging mud that way. And, and Jesse saw that. And she thought, boy, are you making a mess of my yard. But the more we tried to go back and forth, we put things under the wheels, we dug out around it, we had this trench that we were digging in the middle of, of his yard there. It was getting messier, messier, and messier by the minute. I had my riding lawnmower, so I said, well, we'll just pull it out. Well, that got stuck. Uh, we were starting to really get, really, it was terrible. It looked like a hopeless thing. Two hours spent trying to move that thing out of the side of her yard. And finally, he, he, Philip was thinking, well, who can recall? Who can come? Who can do something? And I said, just call a tow truck. And we did, and he just hooked on and yanked it right out of there. And that was nice to see. But uh, sometimes when you get so deep in something, you say, that will never, that will never get out. You can't get that out. Sometimes in life we get that way too, don't we? I really, really enjoy the words of Corey Ten Boon. When you know her life and all that she experienced, the one words that always stick in my mind is the fact that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. I've thought of that a lot. Even shared that with a friend who was having tough times. And I said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. When we think that we are alone, we are not. We are not. Psalm 139. Keep your finger here, but let's go to that beautiful psalm and look at a couple of verses here. Psalm 139 starts in verse number 7. Where he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. That's quite a scene, isn't it? The darkness overwhelm me, and the light around me be night. Even the 
darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. This is our God. We can't go anywhere without Him. Though, how often we think that He's not there. Something about darkness, I think, sets that off. Tonight, as we get a reminder of the character and actions of our God, I, I use the phrase, God's track record. You know, I've used that for so long, I, I had to stop and say, what does that exactly mean? So, of course, I typed it into the internet search, and I said, what is that? Why do we use that phrase all the time? Track record, his track record, and her track record, or something like that. And it was just a simple phrase. They said it was a very informal type of definition, a record of actual performance or accomplishment. It's just real simple, isn't it? It's exactly what we use it for. It's something, it shows what they've done, what they've accomplished. Well, the Bible is a track record, then, of our God. It records what He has actually done and what He's accomplished. Why do you think He had that recorded? Because we are so forgetful. And when we're in the midst of trouble, first thought is, I'm alone, right? That's generally the way our minds tend to take us. Here David, in one of the lowest points that we could even fathom in his life, he was sure he was going to be killed. That's what we're going to see as we go later on in this passage. And if this is the early part of his life, he still had a lot, a lot more to experience that would be like this or worse. Now, generally, when I, I've studied the life of David several times, and, and I generally think he was a very stable man. We have record of his sins, yes. And that's not whitewashing it in any way. But as a whole, he, he acted mature, fighting a giant named Goliath, playing a harp for a king, taking care of sheep all by himself, uh, uh, going from a fugitive for all those years to suddenly becoming a king. And you don't see a, a, a radical change in his life when he's no longer running and now he's king. He's still walking with the Lord. And, and we see those uh, character traits about him that I consider stable, even though he had much grief and and the consequences of his sins were were rather difficult. I can't even imagine the things that he had to go through because of those. But even in the midst of his sins, he knew what was right. The one particular case toward the end of his life when he decided to take up a census. And it was wrong. The Lord punished him for that. And the Lord came to him and gave him three options for punishment. It's like, which door do you want? Door number one, door number two, or door number three? But he told him what was behind each one. And the one David chose, if you remember, was the one that affected him personally. He could have laid it all on the shoulders of everyone else, but he didn't do that. And there's a, there's a strength in that, because 
he knew the character of God. And it's just an impressive thing as I, I read his life. Uh, his knowledge of God, it's woven throughout these psalms. These psalms are more than just poems or songs. They're rich in theology. A man who's thought much about his God and could express it so beautifully in words. So I, I find it interesting here that when he is at this moment when he's calling out in words that say, I've been forsaken and you don't even hear me. He resorts to the past events of God to bolster his shaking mind. He goes right to those events. I think that's a very healthy thing to do when you're at that moment. For some time after the Lord took Kay home, I had a terrible time sleeping. It was hard to sleep at night. Maybe it was partially, well, I know it was. It was, it was the loss, it was the difference. But it was also dark. You turn off the lights and, and uh, there's nothing to see to keep your, your attention and your mind. And, and it's easy to get confused. And I, I, I had never known that before. And it was kind of frustrating, to tell the truth. But uh, thoughts would come and kind of lodge there, and it was hard to shake, so I'd just get back up. So, well, I'll just walk around the house a little bit. I don't know what the kids thought. I was always walking around. Uh, I'd get up, I'd, I'd say, well, maybe I just need a drink. I'd turn on my lights. I'd do whatever. I'd read it for a little while and, and such like that. Uh, turn off the lights, and guess what was waiting? That darkness and that that just couldn't sleep. It was just always pounding on me. It felt that way, and it was hard. It was really hard. And so what I thought I'd do, what I thought I'd do is, I had an audio Bible next to me. And uh, I would set it on a chapter, and I, it was set to, to the way that it just kept on going. Right? It didn't turn off unless I turned it off. So I'd pick a big book, like Ezekiel, or something I knew would just run forever. And I said, well, I'm going to just start this, set it down here, and listen to it. But as I did that, I always said, Lord, you know, I intend to fall asleep. And you know how we're always guarded. We don't fall asleep on the pastor when he's preaching, right? So I, I said, Lord, I, I'm going to fall asleep. I'm going to set it, and I'm going to listen, and then I'll fall asleep. And, and it's amazing how many chapters would go by before I'd wake up again. Uh, but then I created a habit of that, actually, um, because the other week, last week, I was just doing my, my time listening to the book of Matthew, and I've been doing about four or five chapters at a time, and turned it on, Matthew 16. Next moment, Mark chapter 4. And I said, what happened? I missed a lot. <laughs> just, I, I fell asleep. But what that picture did for me, what, what my intentions were, was like what we read in Isaiah chapter uh, 26. You might know the verse, and I'll read it in the NAS, and then I'll read it in the King James. You'll really recognize it then. He says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, because he trusts in you. The way you've heard it many, many years. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Stayed on thee. The context of that simple phrase is in Isaiah 25. And I'm going to read that for you here tonight. Because I think it speaks volumes uh, 
to what David is trying to express as well. It's not a long section, Isaiah 25. It's a song of praise. A song of praise for God's favor. And I'm going to read right through 25 and right up to verse number 4 of chapter 26. He says in verse 25, chapter 25, verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap and fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more and it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless uh, nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, from the breath of the ruthless. Is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat and drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all his people on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from their faces. you remember those verses? New Testament speaks of that too, doesn't it? When he wipes the tears from all the faith. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of the manure pile. He will spread out his hand in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hand to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with his trickery of his hands, the unassailable fortifications of your walls he will tear down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. What a picture that Isaiah is painting in this. It seems like Moab is giving them a lot of grief. And God could take that whole nation and just press them down. And those who are being treated so poorly, he raises them up. That's a picture all the way through. Focus on God. Focus on God. You saw the problems, but the focus was on God. And I see that same thing going on here in David. How wise this is. He knows what to do with his mind. In the midst of this terrible scenario of believing he's been forsaken by God, he goes back to God's character. God's actions 
on behalf of our fathers, he says. Yet, here in Psalm 22, verse 3, you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. You they trusted and were not disappointed. These are the things that David knows about the Lord. His God who he thinks has abandoned him. He is holy. Those are the first words that come out of his mouth. You are holy. You know, holiness is a hard concept to grasp. Have you ever tried to, to grapple with it a little bit to fully appreciate it? It's a hard one. A.W. Tozer has written an excellent book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Some of you ladies have studied that together, I recall. But here's what he says in a short paragraph. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he can't even imagine. There's a whole chapter written up like that. But the angels, as you recall, adore him constantly for his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A continuous phrase going on in heaven. That's going to be quite a thing to hear. I wonder if we just get used to it. You know, some sounds you get used to. When uh, Kay and I went to Niagara Falls, we went to a little museum that was associated with the falls, and they had the barrels there. These guys would ride and go over the barrels and stuff and, and things like that. But there was one clipping on the wall, a newspaper clipping, I don't know, back in the 30s or, or some, time, some time ago, the day that the ice jammed up the river and the falls stopped. The sound was so quiet, they weren't used to it. And there were some who thought, the world has ended, because <laughs> the falls stopped, and the noise, the roar, you can hear the roar, if you've ever been there, you can hear it a good mile away, you can hear the roar of the water going over those falls. And, and just to have it stop when you're so accustomed to it. There's a scene in heaven, in the book of Revelation, where there is silence for 30 minutes, could you imagine what that must be like? For angels, since the day they were created, have been around that throne saying, Holy, 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 holy. And then they stop. Ooh, that's quite a scene. Quite a scene. Well, the angels have spoken of His holiness for, for centuries and, and times we can't even imagine. Isaiah was struck with the holiness of God. In that same scene in Isaiah chapter 6, when he got a glimpse of the holiness of God, he was undone as a sinful man. 
and he knew it. Yeah, as great as that characteristic is, the Bible never hesitates to tell us that God is holy. Even if it's something beyond our, our capability to understand, God's word constantly reminds us that he is holy. And here's the first thing David thought of when he said, I think God has abandoned me. Why? His woe is me is quickly changed to wow is he. What a change from his, the direction of his attention. Now, I don't know how many facets of holiness we could possibly even consider here. Probably a multitude or more, but the time won't give us any more time. Let's, let's just, for this purpose, consider this fact that God can't be anything less than holy. He can't be. His character is so concrete, it does not shift, it does not sway, it does not intensify, it, it doesn't diminish, it doesn't wear with age. It's a constant quality, it's an enduring permanence in his character. Too often when we think of his character, if we were in David's shoes at the first couple of verses, we might have thought, well, um, God, you know... When we get weak, our character tends to diminish a little bit. Maybe we're worried he's changed. Maybe he's changed his mind about us. Why did he abandon us? David's asking why. He may have wanted us when we were good boys and girls, but now it's different. We have a challenge, we have a problem, we have a difficulty... We get stressed, we feel bad, we tick the cat or the dog, whatever is closest. We think that's the way God reacts. Somehow we always attribute human characteristics to God, don't we? At the deepest moment of grief, God is holy. At the highest moment of joy, God is holy. He is just holy. He is always holy. The first thought on David's mind as he's sinking down in this place, he says, but you are holy. That's something that will never change. I heard a man once teaching on prayer and his emphasis was on honesty. I thought that was always a funny topic, being honest in prayer. And then when he went to explain it, I realized how yeah, we, we tend to be this way. We, we speak to God in guarded words at times. Uh, um, we don't really want Him to know the full nature of our problems. You know, we, we kind of come around to it a little bit, and we don't say the exact thing, things, uh, especially if we were the cause for the problem. There's other ways we, we address each other. We, we try to mask a few things here and such. And yet this man says, just tell him what it is. Just speak to him straight. Just tell, you're not going to surprise him. And the phrase he used, he says, and you won't knock him off his throne. And I always thought that through. In the sense that being honest with God, does he already know? Yeah. So who are we deceiving? ourselves. He said, just be honest. Talk to him straight. He already knows, 
and he's not coming off his throne. He's not going to fall apart because you just shocked him. This is what he says. You are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. There's a psalm that every time I, I read this phrase, you're enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Psalm 93 tends to come to mind for some reason. Probably because I like it so much. But Psalm 93 is, is a beautiful little picture of what trouble would do to us. Now, I'll read it to you. It's only five verses long. But here the, the psalmist starts. The Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. He starts with a picture of God, right? God, you're on your throne. You're, you're secure on that throne and everything's right. Because you're on that throne. And he's in the midst of praise. And all of a sudden, there's a distraction. A, not a little one, a big one. Look at the way he says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. This, this picture, remember several years ago when we watched on the news the, the tsunami, the waters that went across Japan? What a frightful scene that was to see it collecting houses and, and cars and, and all the rest and just shoving them right across the land. And water power is so impressive. And here this, this psalmist is, I, I picture him and maybe it's completely off, but he's, he's out in a beautiful field worshiping the Lord and all of a sudden this tsunami is coming at him. Huge wave! The sound of the wave is it's, it's covering the sound of his voice. He, 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 all he sees is water. He's looking up and this wave is coming down upon him. A huge wave. The floods have lifted up their pounding waters more than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. And yet, if he looked up one more space, who does he see above that? The next phrase. The Lord on high is mighty. I love the way that psalm just comes into place. Because if we're looking at the wave, we're thinking we're doomed. We look a little higher and who's still there? The Lord's still on his throne. Those waves didn't cover him up. He's still, he's still the Lord on high. He's still mighty. And so he goes back to, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness, there's that phrase again. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. I love that little psalm. It's so simple. But the picture is, is powerful. When we think of, of God enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He's enthroned there and no one will ever take his place. He is enthroned there and nothing will remove him. It's a fact we really need established in our thinking. When we go through these tough times, we think we're forsaken. We think the Lord is gone. But he's not. He's enthroned. He does not move. He's there. Circumstances change. We know that. Situations change. People change. 
calendars change, but our God is holy. Our God is enthroned, and He will not change. It's good to know His character, isn't it? It's good to know that character. See, it's easy now to comprehend His actions on behalf of His people. He says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, I really wish that the fathers he's talking of had a better track record. You go through the Old Testament before the life of David, and and it's hard reading at times, isn't it? The book of Judges. Do you ever get so frustrated with those people? Why don't you ever learn? Do it again, do it again. We call it the cycle. One moment they're with the Lord, and the next minute they turn their back on Him, and then the Lord sends that that, uh, terrible punishment, which was usually an enemy, and then they cry out to the Lord and say, we're sorry, and then He sends a judge to deliver them and restore them back to a relationship with Him. And it looks almost like going around the dial of a clock. They so consistently follow that. However, a better picture of it is not as a clock, but like going around a spring as it's slowly heading downward. Because every time they came to the point where they were delivered, they were less than where they had started the first time. And each episode became worse. And probably that's why most people say, well, that's not my favorite book. (laughs) You know, that's just a, a reminder of the sinfulness of man. And I really wish the fathers had a better track record of trust. We find in the Old Testament so many times they didn't trust. But here's the question I I raise. You could give me chapter and verse if you can find it. Where did the people trust God and He failed them? You won't find it, will you? Never failed them. How many times did he respond when they trusted him to deliver them? God was there, providing for them. How many times did he do it in a miraculous way even? Because he's capable of that. And he did do that over and over. He's capable of anything. He, he split a sea into a dry path, remember? He split a rock to provide water for a multitude and their livestock. They cried out to him, and he delivered, the psalmist says. That's the story of nearly every chapter of the book of Judges. Now, David's own family was partially from the tribe of Judah, and partially from the nation of Moab. Remember who his grandmother was? Her name was Ruth. And when we read her story, she trusted the Lord better than most Israelites. But you find where God has delivered them, and delivered them, and delivered them. And I ask you to find this. How many times after they were delivered by God that they were disappointed? You won't find that either, will you? Notice the words he says. They cried out to you and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. 
God not only rescues, but he does not disappoint either. I, I found this definition for disappoint. The word is bosh. Isn't that great? Hebrew word, bosh. That's the word for disappoint. And this, this is all the words related to it. See if you find something common in all these definitions. Uh, the primary root is to be ashamed, to act shamefully, acts shamefully, ashamed, ashamed at all, being anxious, become dry, been confounded, been put, been put to shame, been shamed, brings shame, covered with shame, delayed, disappointed, feel shame, put me to shame, put them to shame, put to shame, shame, shamed, shameful, shames, utterly dejected, utterly put, utterly put to shame. What's the dominant word in all that? Shame. And it says, at no time, those who trusted God were put to shame. That was kind of the theology of David's uh, courage. When he'd walk against a giant nine foot six, it was not based on what David knew of himself. He just knew that God's name would not be shamed. When they went into battle so many times in the Old Testament, they went in there wearing the name of Christ or name of the Lord because they said, that name will not be shamed. God rescues and delivers and no one's disappointed. I have yet to find a verse where they said, man, I wish he hadn't done that. <laughs> he rescues because they trust him. They were never put to shame. Three times in the New Testament that word disappointed appears. Three times. Listen to these. Romans 9.33 Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not to be disappointed. Romans 10, verse 11 For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 1 Peter 2, verse number 6 for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. It's the same verse every single time they bring it up. It all starts the same with the view of the Lord. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. In the middle is the same response. He who believes in him, at the end, the same result, they will not be disappointed. All three elements are in these verses. Quoted from Isaiah again, chapter 28, verse 16. You see, God keeps repeating himself on this point. I wonder why he must do that. Is it because we're so forgetful? Because we think things are not right and I'm disappointed? And generally, where do we aim that disappointment? We aim it toward God, don't we? As if something is flawed in his character, in his actions toward us. And yet David says, no, that's not the character of my God. My God is like a choice stone. The value is always the same. He's like a cornerstone. You can build upon him. And that calls for a response, a response of faith. Every time we must trust Him. And the promise that comes with it 
every single time is, you will not be disappointed. Do you think stepping into heaven you're going to be disappointed? Walk in there and say, well, I was kind of picturing it a little better than this. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know how he has ever disappointed us, and I know he never will. But this is how David has come completely around to the same point here. Yet you are holy, this Psalm 22 says. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now that is a perfect reaction to one who thinks God has abandoned him. Don't look at the circumstances to tell you about God. Look at God and he redefines the circumstances. We get our, our vision around backwards, don't we? Maybe that's where David had started here. But he knew where to go. I hope that's where we are. First thing we do is remind ourselves, who is our God? Do we have enough evidence to show us how faithful he is? Oh, yes, we do. Not just his word, but you know it in your life, don't you? Faithful, 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 because he's holy and that never changes. These are good words. These are good words. We have much more to go in this psalm, but that's a good place for us to stop for the, this week. You've got six days now to think that through. And then we'll come back to the psalm again next Sunday morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know how often we, we turn things around. We view things from an inside perspective that reflects man, reflects the way man thinks or acts. We, we focus on the character of a man who constantly fails and, and who is inconsistent, who is uh, untrustworthy. And why we attribute that to you, I don't know. But far too often we do. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given to us in your word here tonight the proper perspective that our first thoughts should and must go to who you are and not what we're, what we're experiencing. That is redefined in light of your character. So I pray, Lord, that if it's not a habit for us, if it's not the first thing we do, that you would teach us, that you would train us in this, that our minds go to you first, reminded again of what you have done, knowing full well your character does not change. For as Scripture says, you are the same yesterday and today and forever. So impress upon us your character, the things that you have done, and help us to walk in light of that. And I trust, Lord, that if, if there's struggles here that are answered by these things, uh, Lord, we, that's where we need to be. So do your great work in our midst, we pray. Remind us how great you are and how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.